Welcome to the Homicide Homegirls podcast, a true crime podcast examining the true crime cases that fascinate and intrigue us. I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda. Thanks Thanks for for joining us. us. We can't wait to share the details of this wild episode with you. Happy Wednesday, listeners. Hey, y'all. So, hopefully all this coronavirus pandemic crud will be finished by the time this episode comes out. But, at the time of this recording, we are dead smack in the middle of it. Which means Amanda and I aren't in the same room recording, which is still an adjustment for us. So, if our episodes sound a little different or feel a little different, um, we apologize, so just bear with us. But hopefully we can get back to normal and record in the same room really soon and see each other on a semi-normal basis because I miss my best friend. Retweet. So, guys, if by the time this episode comes out, this pandemic is still going on, stay your behinds home. Because I'm about to lose my mind from trying to work from home, homeschool my kids, watch my kids, feed my kids, cook, clean, do laundry, and relax once my kids go to bed. Y'all, if this keeps up for much longer, I will definitely lose my mind. So please, for the love of God, just stay home. Yeah, I like um, how much traffic isn't on the road. <laughs> and I'm essential, so... Because you're essential, right? So yeah, like, we, we speed, like... Like, stay out of the The new speed limit is 80, so let's go. Yeah, yeah. Like, just stop. Get out of my way. I got somewhere to go. Anyways, I'll hop off my soapbox now, so let's jump right in. Today we're going to California for the first time. Really? Well, well, we had a case in California in the Christmas Christmas compilation episode, but this is, like, the first full episode that takes place in California, I believe. If I'm wrong, don't come for me, Um, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. (laughs) So today we're going to be discussing a horrendous triple murder that took place in April 1981 in Cabin 28 of the Keddy Resort in Keddy, California. And Keddy, California is in Northeast California, which is about 140 miles in like two and a half hours from Sacramento and about 220 miles and four hours from San Francisco. So just wanted to give some quick, you know, background so people can kind of imagine, you you know, geographically where this is. Are you going to, like, describe, because I want to ask, but I'm sure you'll do it, what exactly cabins and, like, what what kind of resort? Yeah. Yep. In a second. But... Like I said, I just wanted to kind of geographically give people an idea, because most people know kind of where Sacramento and San Francisco and California are, you know, the bigger cities. Um, But, you know, Keddy, I was like, what's a Keddy? Like, (laughs) so, but before I continue, I just want to say that I'm kind of glad Amanda and I aren't recording in the same room, because she really might throw something at me after I say this next part, but... Here goes nothing. So you make me out to be some violent monster. <laughs> <laughs> no, just really passionate about okay corruption and in your in your defense, you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So some kind of monster. So the biggest theme underlying this whole case is improper investigation, like. Michelle O'Connell improper investigation or or lazy police work? 
cover-up. So, yeah, kind of like Michelle O'Connell, I guess. Okay. So, of course, um, when there is background to be found, you know, we try to start with that. So, in 1979, 36-year-old Navy wife, Glenna Sue Sharp, known to her friends as Sue, so that's what I'm going to call her from now on, she suddenly found herself a single mother to five children. After divorcing her husband, who was allegedly abusive, Sue moved her five children cross-country from Connecticut to Petty, California. Yeah, that is, like, a huge move. Um, So, like, she stayed with friends and relatives along the way. You know, because, I mean, that's a really long trip to make in one drive, especially with five kids. So, she finally settled at Petty Resort around November of 1980. And Sue's brother lived in Quincy, California, which is about seven miles from Ketty. So it kind of made sense for Sue and her children to settle there because they would have some family, you know, in the area. Because, I mean, it's hard to move, to move, period, much less cross country and not have anyone. You know, that one summer that I lived in Georgia with no one was horrible. Tell me about it. Yeah, I didn't see anybody but my... POSX for the whole summer, and that was terrible. If you're listening, you're a POS. <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> anyway, Sue and her children quickly settled into Cabin 28 of the Ketty Resort, and they began participating in normal neighborhood-type events like barbecues, you know, the kids playing with the other kids, you know, that lived in the area or at the resort. You know, your average typical like neighborly behavior like what you would see in any neighborhood you know kids running around playing together not my neighborhood we have one neighbor that we like but other than that you know anyway so the sharp family quickly became really close with the neighbor their neighbors in cabin 27 which was the seabolt family they're going to be really important in this i was about to say dun, dun, dun. yeah obviously i would not mention them if they weren't important so, just a little bit of background on the Ketty Resort. That's what you were asking. Michelle. So, it it was founded in 1910, and it included 33 rustic cabins that visitors could rent. Mm-hmm. Or, like, long-term, long-term, or, like, I guess for, like, a week at a time, mm-hmm. you know. So, visitors could also rent a room in a two-story lodge. And the Ketty Lodge restaurant was very popular with tourists. And it was reported that people would come from as far as San Francisco, which, like I said, it's a four-hour drive, um, just to eat at the restaurant. Because the restaurant served exotic game, like barbecue. Wait, I have a question. Yes. Is this restaurant still open? No. I'm fairly certain it's not. Dang it. I don't don't think... I'll 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 get there. But I was thinking when Lizzie moves us uh, close to San Francisco. Uh-huh. Oh right, road trip. <laughs> so the restaurant served exotic game, like uh-huh. barbecued bear ribs, sherry-based raccoon steaks, and it was all shot locally. Oh wow! Yeah, and I'll the resort the bear ribs. I'm not even gonna lie. Right, and the resort also offered like great trout fishing in its streams and they had trails lined with like pine trees that was really great for hiking so in the early 80s the Ketty resort was a really really popular tourist attraction that was that is until 
April of 1981, when one of the most horrific murders the small town has ever seen took place on its grounds. So, the sleeping arrangements for the Sharp family of six, you know, the mom and the five kids, and um, I'm going to get to their ages in a second. Um, So, they stayed in cabin 28, which was a three-bedroom cabin. So, their sleeping arrangements are pretty cramped, and I can totally understand that. Like, I live in a three-bedroom house, and I can't imagine having five kids in this house. Like, we're busting at the seams with two kids, so... I mean, I know you have to make the best of every situation, so, you know, that's exactly what the Sharp family did. So, 36-year-old Sue, the mom, shared a room with her two daughters, Sheila, who was 14, and Tina, who was 12. And then the two youngest boys, Rick, who was 10, and Greg, who was 5, shared another room. And because Johnny, who was 15, was the oldest, he got the bedroom, the basement bedroom to himself. Honestly, like, with their genders and ages, like, I feel like that's the best Oh, right. Yeah, like, for sure. Right. And, um, according to my research, this basement bedroom had, like, a whole separate entrance from the rest of the house, uh, which was a set of stairs located, like, on the rear of the cabin. So, Sue, as a, you know, as a single mom, she struggled to make ends meet, uh, with just $250 a month that she received from the Navy. Wow. I, I guess as, like, an ex-wife, you know, or whatever, which that money covered rent, and she also got food stamps, and she got a stipend that she received for being enrolled in a federal education program. Mm-hmm. So, according to an FBI document, which was dated a month after the murders, quote, she was not a fancy dresser and was best described by casual associates and neighbors as a loner. Sharp had one close girlfriend, a neighbor woman with the last name of Meeks. Sharp's only known source of income came from her position as a CETA worker, wherein she was paid to attend school, the Feather River Community College, where she was to learn a business trade. She was described as being a good student who studied hard and obtained good grades, but who was also a loner and who did not participate in social gatherings such as coffee breaks. She had no other known source of income other than a $250 a month, allotment check from the U.S. Navy via her husband. Prior to her death, Sharp had no local criminal record, nor was she known to local authorities, end quote. Mm, I'm getting vibes. I'm getting vibes. So, and I don't know, maybe she just wasn't social, like, in, at her, in her school or her work setting. Because everything else I read, you know, like, they were friendly with the neighbors. You know? And, like, was so. this, that school was in California, right? Yes. Like yeah. she didn't know anybody. I mean, right. I, I yeah, feel she like the know. way it was worded, they kind of like held it against her that she was alone. Yeah, that's kind of that's the vibe I got too. That she was a like I feel like a loner is a very negative has a negative type of connotation. connotation yeah, I mean, and if somebody called me a loner, I'd be like, yeah, you're right. But like the way it was worded in a professional statement by the FBI, right? That's who. Yeah, it was like yeah, I feel FBI like it was document. very derogatory. I kind of got those vibes, too, and I was just like, ooh. But, I've been like, and what? Like, so what? I don't know. And what? Right. So, um, Dana Wingate was a 17-year-old friend of Johnny Sharp, the oldest, the 15-year-old son. Um, Dana was the only boy of four children. Oh, bo- Dana's a boy? 
Yes, Dana Wingate okay. is a is a boy. Yeah. Um, at the time of the murders, he was living at a group home in Plumas County, and Plumas County is where Keddy is. Okay. Um, but I'm unsure why exactly he was in the group home to begin with. Right. I couldn't find that, but on the afternoon of April 11th, Dana asked permission of the couple who ran the group home to spend the night at Johnny's house, and they said, yeah, that's fine, as long as you and Johnny don't hitchhike, you know, to Keddy, because that the home, group home was in Quincy, which, like I said, that's where the uncle lived, so it was like seven miles, but, you know, they were like, yeah, go, as long as you don't hitchhike, but it was reported that that's exactly what they were seen doing that night, hitchhiking from Quincy to Keddy. So, you know, and I mean, it was just a different time. Yeah, like, I feel like now, I would, like, never, ever, ever hitchhike, but, like, back in, like, the 70s and the 80s, people hitchhiked all the time and, like, didn't think anything of it. And, you know, looking back now, like, in 2020, it's like, holy crap, like, people really did this, but, I don't know, like I said, different time. So, on, like I said, that was on April 11th. The night of April 11th, they were seen hitchhiking. On Sunday morning, April 12th, 1981, Sheila Sharp, who is the 14-year-old daughter, she was the second oldest, she woke up next door in cabin 27, where she had spent the night with her neighbors, the Seabolts. So around 7.45 a.m., because it was Sunday, Sheila returned to her home at cabin 28 to get clothes to wear for church. She was going to go with the neighbors. And immediately when she opened the front door, she saw three bodies on the living room floor. Like, that's what she walked into. And the one furthest away from her was covered with a blanket. And she noticed that each of the bodies was bound with what looked like tape of some sort um, and electrical cord. And she also noticed a hammer and what she thought was an open pocket knife on the floor, like, between the doorway and the closest body to her. But... It would later be determined that this was actually a steak knife that was just bent and not a pocket knife. So just the sheer brutality to bend a steak knife so much that it looked like a pocket knife blows my mind. Right. So naturally, Sheila ran screaming back to the neighbor's home at Cabin 27 looking for help. So Sheila and Mrs. Siebel, the mom ran across the street to the landlord's home at cabin 25 and called the Plumas County Sheriff's Office. Before PCSO arrived on the scene, Sheila and Mrs. Seabolt returned to cabin 28 and knocked on the younger boy's bedroom window. So Rick and Greg, the 10 and 5-year-old. So Mrs. Seabolt's son, Jamie, pulled three unharmed children from the window. Two of Sheila's siblings, 10-year-old Rick and 5-year-old Greg, as well as 12-year-old Justin Eason, a neighbor who had a sleepover at the Sharp home the previous night. These three boys had apparently slept through the entirety of the horror that took place in Cabin 28. So, in a documentary I watched, Sheila was actually interviewed, and she said that she had Jamie pull her brothers and their friend out of the window because she didn't want them to have to exit through the living room, you know, and see what she had seen. And I feel like I would have done the exact same thing, but a lot of people have criticized because 
you know, like the police hadn't even entered there, you know, hadn't hadn't even gotten there yet. And, you know, so people have said like, oh, he could have like contaminated, you know, because after he pulled the kids out, Jamie went up the set of the outdoor stairs at the back of cabin 28 that I talked about. And he entered the home through the back door, which was already open, which they're assuming was left that way by the killers. And he looked around the home, you know, searching for other survivors. And when he found none, he went outside with the others and waited for law enforcement to arrive. And I get the thought process of doing that. But like I said, people have criticized because, I mean, you don't know what he might have tracked through the crime scene, you know? Yeah. And then pulling the kids out. Like I said, I probably would have done the same thing. Like, I probably would have pulled the kids out myself, too. Right. But I can I can see both sides. Like, I can see the criticism of it because it's a crime scene. But not everybody thinks that way. I would have probably pulled the kids out, but not... Not walk through. Right. Back. Yeah. Right. So, and I feel like I say this in a lot of episodes, but Caddy, California was such a small town where, like, nothing like this had ever happened. So... Basically, like, the Plumas County Sheriff's Department was immediately in over their head. And following these murders, the residents of the tiny town were immediately thrust into terror and fear. And, like I said, nothing like this had ever happened before. Yeah. And, I mean, I know this was, what, in 79, 80? 81, yeah. So, like, that's why it's important to, like, continue, like, ongoing training and, like, continued education. Like, I don't care how small you are. You have got to prepare, like, right. for the worst. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. and it was eight eighty one. Like, you know, like nowadays, like I feel like more departments. I mean, at least the one I worked for was really big on training. But yeah, I mean, I can't say yeah. the same for others. Like, there were classes that I didn't necessarily need to attend, but I wanted to. Like, um, like an active shooter, which is really important these days, or. Um, hostage negotiation like that sounds like a big deal like I wasn't an official hostage negotiator but if I had somebody on the phone who wanted to take their life I knew how to you had at least some background and right 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 some tactics to try to talk to them and when I say Ketty is small I mean small so as of the 2000 census they had 96 people holy crap and as of the 2010 census there was 66 people. So, like, it didn't go back as, I didn't, you know, research as far back as the 80s. But, I'm, I mean, that's, wow. that's, like, you, you don't even have 100 people. Like, right. so, so, like, people started to wonder, like, is this just random? Or, like, was one of these people an actual target, you know? Right. So, now I'm going to jump into the investigation. So the Plumas County Sheriff's Office arrived on the scene and began their investigation and they identified three victims, 36-year-old Glenna Sue Sharp, 15-year-old Johnny Sharp, and Johnny's friend, 17-year-old Dana Wingate. So investigators started to hypothesize about, you know, what may have happened. And based on the scene, uh, it appeared to investigators that there had been like a fight of some sort. They even found knife so, marks on the walls. Time out. So, your two younger boys are accounted for. Mm-hmm. Your um, your oldest boy is accounted for, and friend, and mom, and then and Sheila. He's a victim. Sheila the was oldest daughter. Door. So, mm-hmm. are we missing a girl? Yep. And how long did that take you? 
Um, Three I, seconds. Honest, honestly, I thought the two girls were the ones you were going to say were on the floor. I was just waiting for you to identify them. No, because Sheila's the one that found them, one of the girls. Right, right, right. So. Yeah, so, like, okay, I'm going to get there because it took you all of five seconds to uh-huh. ask that. So, um, but like I said, like, it was a very gruesome scene. Like, they found knife marks in the walls. They even took panels of the living room walls with the knife marks, like, uh, to analyze them. Right. And so police began to suspect that the assailants may have known the Sharp family because there was no signs of forced entry at Cabin 28. And Johnny Sharp sustained many injuries as if he was trying to fight off his attacker or attackers, like, to protect his mom. Well, they're hypothesizing they don't really know. Autopsy reports on the bodies revealed that the victims were all beaten and stabbed with two different hammers. But only one of the hammers was found at the scene. So there's already a missing hammer. Hold up. I'm thinking, like, as much force of violence went into this attack, there should have been loads of evidence, including your attackers. Right. Right, like, you, as brutal as it was, and I mean, killing somebody with a hammer is, you're in their face. I mean, it's not like you're shooting them from across the room. Like, you would be covered in blood and, you know. I mean, just think of, like, I mean, I lose a lot of freaking hair. You know what I'm saying? Like, I would have left something behind. Right. So, like I said, the second hammer was missing, and according to the crime scene report, the boys' bodies on the living room floor were bloodied around their heads and necks, and Johnny was found face up with his hands and feet bound by an electrical cord that was also wrapped around Dana's feet. So, like, they tied the boys together. So, you know. And Sue was covered by a yellow blanket with her hands and feet bound by electrical wiring. And, like I said, the three were killed using knives and a hammer and a bent, a bent steak knife laid on the floor, um, the knife Sheila had mistaken for um, a pocket knife, and a butcher knife and a claw hammer, both with blood on them, were side by side on, like, a little wood table near the entry to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Which, if you're going to take one of the murder weapons, why not take all of them? Anyway, so... I want to yeah. respond, but continue. <laughs> so, I so, don't want to accuse. Right. So police immediately started to suspect that there had to have been more than one assailant to be able to tie up, control, torture, and eventually murder three people, two of which were teenage boys, you know? So based on the scene, police believe that whoever did this took their time and was in cabin 28, you know, for a prolonged period of time. So, and this is where it comes back to you asking about Tina, the one unaccounted for sharp um sharp child so in the chaos of everything it took a little bit of time and i don't know exactly how long it took but eventually investigators realized that one of the sharp children 12 year old tina was unaccounted for justin eason the neighbor who was spending the night with the younger sharp boys the one of the boys that got pulled out of the window he was interviewed in a documentary and he said that from the jump he was trying to tell police Teen is missing. Like, you guys need to go look for her, but they weren't listening to him. Uh-huh. He, I think he was 12. I mean, they were probably like, oh, you're a kid. Like, we're not. But, like, 
he said in the documentary, I was trying to tell them over and over, like, Tina's missing, Tina's missing. So once, you know, police actually discovered that Tina was missing, an intensive search for her began. And the police noted that the only thing missing from the home, well, besides, you know, the murder weapon, but the only thing missing from the home that was there before was a shoebox that was in the kitchen that Tina had made for a school project. And apparently she was, like, super attached to this box. Like, I guess she was really proud of her project. Uh So police originally assumed that maybe she had taken that shoebox with her. And that shoebox has never been recovered. Like, to this day. So the Plumas County Sheriff's Office went out and searched roads, including, like, even smaller side roads, all the way down to the Butte County line. And police put out an APB for Tina they put up posters, they even called the FBI in, which I think is pretty standard when you have a missing, endangered child. Um, um, not usually. Well, I guess when you have a small town. like with somebody. Well, with a murder, probably, yes. With a murder on top of a missing, endangered yeah. young child. A triple murder, <laughs> right. Um, so, for obvious reasons, everybody was desperate to find this missing little girl. However... There would be no sign of Tina for quite some time, and in the meantime, the surviving sharp children were placed into foster care in the Pacific Northwest. So, police started where most investigations start. Do you want to take a guess? Yeah. The ex-husband. Yes. Sue's ex-husband, James, Jim Sharp, was the first suspect, because, you know, it's always the husband or the ex or, you know, some Australian relationship estranged relationship sue left the marriage yeah now that i'm thinking about it like he was just okay with her moving all these kids across country right i don't know but sue left the marriage because she couldn't take jim's abusive behavior anymore and according to an interview with sheila sharp in people magazine investigates cabin 24 in the woods an episode that i watched Her father sexually abused her and her younger sister, Tina, up until the time that Sue left Jim when Sheila was around 11 or 12. Wow. So, that means Tina was, like, she's two years younger than Sheila, so, what, nine or ten? Yeah, nine or ten. So, naturally, Jim would be the first suspect, because, like I said, it's always a husband. Or ex-husband. So, police tracked Jim down and started looking into him, and because he was in the Navy... Police actually had the NCIS, Naval Criminal Investigative Service, look into his background, and they didn't find anything, and police even started surveilling Jim, and they were hoping that he may have had Tina, because according to family, Tina was Jim's quote-unquote favorite. Oh, Jesus. That just gives me the creeps. Yeah. But after following him for a few days with no sign of Tina... Um, police decided to go ahead and just question him and point blank asked him, did you kidnap Tina? You know, did you take your daughter? But as it turns out, Jim had an alibi and he was nowhere near Ketty. So there was no way that he could have been involved. And I don't know what his alibi is, but I'm assuming it has, might have something to do with him being in the Navy. I don't know. Right. Because that's a pretty solid alibi, you know. So, with Jim eliminated as a suspect and Tina still missing, police were no closer to the truth or finding Tina, and they basically were back at square one. So, this case was very 
intense, I guess, is the word that I want to use because you have a lot of elements. I mean, first of all, it was really, really brutal. Triple murder. And then you have a missing kid, too, mm-hmm. on top of everything. There's a, it's layered. Right. And then you have, like, the kids who allegedly slept through this whole attack. Yeah. And from the brutality of it, that's just really hard to fathom that, you know. You know, I would think that, too. Like, how on earth were they so oblivious to what was happening in the next room? But I know as a kid, yeah, I slept like a damn rock. Right. Like, sometimes I would wake up, I would fall asleep in the car, like on the way home with my mom. And then I'd wake up in my bed and I'd be like, Mom, how did how did I get here? She's like, you walked. I'm like, I did what? Like, yeah, I right. had no recollection of it. And I, that happened all the time. Yeah. So I guess I could kind of get how they didn't remember. or Right, and they were 10 and 5, like super, super young, too. Uh-huh. So um, also, you know, it makes you wonder, like, why did they not murder them, too? You know, right. Why did they That's leave survivors? Like, I guess like, maybe they the really didn't. Three, were the three like targets, or or were they? Or the, did the three just happen to be in the same in the living room? Like, right. There's so many questions. Yeah, and this is unsolved, so we don't have what. <laughs> God, you just ruined my night. Sorry. God, I hate you. Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> like I've been telling myself this whole time like I just want to fast forward because I want to know what happens but thanks now I'm not really looking forward to the end and this happened 36 years ago so anyway so after being unable to find Tina and eliminating her father Jim as a suspect police started to focus on Tina's life prior to her abduction and started looking at people close to her eventually police landed on Tina's teacher Joel Lipsy and discovered he had somewhat of a fascination with Tina that went beyond what is considered appropriate for a teacher-student relationship. So, Joel Lipsy had a picture of Tina on his desk at school, and he even had a picture of her at his home. Uh, excuse me? Like, what? Like, let me find out a teacher has a picture of my daughter on his or her desk or at their house, I will burn that whole school down. And I'll be right there with you. That is not okay. How did he even get, is it a picture he took? Like, right. No. I mean, in the 80s, it was like, maybe he was it a, like Polaroid? a Polaroid or something. I mean, I was it a school picture? Which, yeah. if the mom didn't really have much of an income, I, I doubt she bought pictures. Like, right. So many questions. Like, I want to fight him. Right. But, I digress. So, witnesses stated that Lipsy was actually at the Ketty Bar the night of the killings, which I think is on the property, like, of the cabins and stuff. Um, which obviously piqued police's interest. However, he did have an alibi for the time of the murders, and there was no evidence linking him to the murders or to Tina's abduction. Because, you know, you have to think, if he is the one who abducted Tina, I don't want to say he had to, but he had to at least have been included in the murders because, like, he had to have participated in the murders because you're not just, like, it's not going to be a coincidence that 
that a kidnapping occurred the same night of a murder and they're not related. Right. Right. So, although Lipsy was not involved in the murders or Tina's abduction, this would not be his last run-in with police. Eventually, Lipsy left the Caddy area and was later arrested for molesting a young girl where he moved. Oh, so he's for real, for real a, a lurker. Right, so I guess police were right to suspect, suspect him initially, you know, because, which I mean, having your student's picture on your desk is weird. Like I could understand a class photo of all 20s. Wow. Or even like a Christmas card that like the family sent out, you know, or something. But, right. But so, you're singling out that one student. That's weird. Yeah. So once Lipsy was cleared, Police continued their desperate search for Tina. However, because police were so focused on finding Tina, the murders of Sue, Johnny, and Dana kind of got put on the back burner because, you know, Tina's missing. So they don't know if she's dead or alive. So I guess they were, you and know, they probably on the potential yeah, of like, finding her alive. And, and maybe they have that glimmer of hope that if they find her, she could have answers to the murder. Exactly. So... Investigators eventually did interview the three boys who escaped the brutality completely unharmed. Mm -hmm. Um, The Sharp boys, 10-year-old Rick and 5-year-old Greg, insisted that they slept through everything and had no idea what transpired that night. Wait, so Rick and Tina were the same age? No, Tina was 12. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, she was two years. So, Johnny was 15, Sheila was 14, Tina was 12... 12, um, 10, and 5. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Investigators also interviewed Justin Ethan, the 12-year-old friend that had spent the night in Cabin uh-huh. 28 on the night of the murders, which, how scary is that? Like, that y- your kid spent the night in a, at some at a friend's house and a murder happened. Oh, my happened. kid wouldn't go nowhere, never again. Oh, no, my kids are not going to spend the night anywhere, ever. Except it's, unless it's, like, a family member or something. Which... I guess it could happen there, too, but anyway. Um, so, Justin told investigators that he thinks he may know something that could help. Time out. Now they want to hear what Justin got to say? Right, right. When he was trying to tell him that Tina's missing and, yeah. Whatever. He told police that he's had this dream where there's some kind of attack or fight. So, this led police to believe that Justin may have seen something that night and had just buried it in his subconscious. In order to try to help Justin remember events from that night, the Plumas County Sheriff hypnotized Justin. Wait, that's, that's, that's what? Right. Is that one of your tact, I mean, what? Right, like, so the sheriff just moonlights as a hypnotist? Like, that's completely normal, right? Like, what, what kind of sheriff just casually knows? How to hypnotize someone? Like, sure, Jan. Like, sure. we'll go with that. Sure. This struck me as, like, completely crazy, but back to the story, and buckle up, Buttercup, because this story is a doozy. So, while under hypnosis, Justin told the sheriff that in his dream, they were on the love boat, you know, him and all Excuse the members, me? like the TV show. Oh. Um, apparently that was a show they were all watching before bed, like him and the whole family and Dana. And two men showed up 
and stabbed Sue, Johnny, and Dana and then threw them overboard and escaped in a rubber raft. Scar! <laughs> Record scratch. I bet you wonder how I got here. When I watched I watched a documentary and they actually interviewed the guy, the kid. Well, he's not a kid anymore. Justin. He's an adult. Yeah, Justin. Um, they interviewed him on the documentary and he was an adult and he was talking about it and I was just like, mouth on the, like, jaw on the ground, like, what? Like, looking around, like, am I being punked? Like, what? Yeah. Like, although, I mean, at 12, your brain is still not, like, fully developed, so, I mean, maybe that was a coping mechanism. Or, like, maybe it was, like, a dream, but only parts of it were true, you know what I'm saying? Right, like, mimicking his reality, and but that was the way that his mind processed it and he was able to deal with it Mm -hmm. so i mean that seemed really crazy but police had to look into it further because a lot of what he of what justin described in his dream mimics what police knew had happened the night in cabin 28 justin described seeing a slit on sue's chest in his dream which lines up with sue's actual injury she was Uh stabbed in the chest he also described one of the attackers having a hammer in his dream, which, again, lines up with what police already knew, that a hammer was used as one of the murder weapons. And he also described that Johnny and Dana tried to fight off the attackers, which, yeah, you guessed it, lines up with the defensive wounds found on the two teenagers. So, even though his dream is likely, you know, a melding, a meshing of reality and fantasy, it was kind of all police had to go on at the time, and some of it seemed to match facts of the murders that he couldn't have known, because, I mean, they didn't release any of this. Yeah, but if he was on scene the day it happened, and he was listening to... True, he, yeah, that's The true, hustle but... and bustle, you know, he could have been like, oh, sh- there's a hammer located. Like, some of that, I mean, he was 12. Some of that could have been what he heard in passing. They obviously didn't have their sh- together in this this investigation so they probably weren't dotting their i's and crossing their t's when it came to or separating witnesses or anything like that also while under hypnosis justin described two men one had short hair and one had long hair and based on his descriptions a composite artist came up with two composite drawings of the suspects one of the drawings resembled marty smart who just so happened to be Justin's stepfather. Do we have an M.O. for him? Like, if it were, if it could have been him. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm going to you know go into him. Yeah. So, Marty lived with Justin and his mother, Marilyn, in Cabin 26, which was just adjacent to Cabin 28. So, like, they lived there, too. And according to Sheila Sharp, Marty Smart despised her brother Johnny, and he just wasn't a very nice man. Like, they didn't have any good interactions with him. Marty was a Vietnam vet who was diagnosed with PTSD and was known to be aggressive and violent with an explosive temper. Where have we heard that before? What did he say in the show, O'Connor? Explosive, I think. Explosive anger? Yeah, something like that. That's what, but that's what I'm talking about when I was like, where have we heard that before? Right, right, right. That's the, that's the same thing that yeah. I thought of. That's the exact <laughs> thing that I thought of uh, when I saw this. Okay, so here's the composite drawings, and I will post this. Okay, 
So there's a short hair. The, the long guy. hair is Marty ish, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, ish. Let me find a picture of him. If y'all could see how ridiculous we look with our iPads right now. Um, she's like showing me on her phone. Like, we look like we're playing Battleship, but like, what is it, 50 miles away? Right. Martin Ray Smart is her full name. And I mean, he kind of does resemble that picture. Wait, it's the long haired one or the short haired one? Yeah. That's Marty for real? I mean, he doesn't have. They think it is. Or a lot of people call police and they're like, yo. That'd be him. <laughs> While I'm pulling up pictures, this is uh, the Sharp family. So that's Sue. And then Johnny. I'm sure to that's the top. Johnny. Sheila's yeah. at the bottom. Sheila. Tina. Tina. Well, Sheila's. I don't know. Sheila looks. Tina's younger. Yeah, so she, the one at the bottom looks younger. I mean, looks the, older. Yeah, the one at the bottom. Well, no, I think this is Tina. Oh. And that's. Rick. Rick. Sheila. And Ooh. Greg is the one she's holding. And then Greg's the baby. And this is Dana in the bottom corner. That's Ooh. the friend that was sleeping over? Yeah, this is the friend. He had really awesome hair. Yeah, I'm kind of jealous. Yeah, like a lot of people said that, you know, this sketch really, really resembled. They found that it really resembled. Um, Marty Smart, and I mean, I guess I can kind of see it. But, again, I mean, this was 1981, and y'all will see the sketch. It's kind of primitive, almost, uh-huh. you know. It's not like today. Marty was a Vietnam vet with PTSD, and was known to be aggressive and violent with an explosive temper, and we already talked about the other case with the explosive I gotta temper. stop describing people like that. So, it was reported that Marty abused his wife, Marilyn, and his stepson, Justin, which culminated in an attempt to run Marilyn and Justin over with a car. Wait, Marty? Yes. How? He went to the VA, and he was placed in the mental health unit. Probably needed to be, obviously. So, while he was there, Marty met Severin John Boobaday, who went by Bo for obvious reasons, because his name is really terrible. Yeah. So when Marty was released from the hospital, he brought Bo back to Kenny with him. And Bo was allowed to sleep on their couch. So if we thought Marty was shady, Bo was equally sketchy, if not more. Bo had a pretty extensive criminal history as a thief and was rumored to have been a hitman and spent much time in and out of prison throughout his life. Which, I mean, that's not the kind of person you want crashing on your couch, in my opinion. So, Justin's mom, Marilyn, was interviewed by investigators shortly after the murders, and she told investigators that Bo had asked Sue out the night of the murders, and she rejected his advances. So, Marilyn continued and told investigators that the night of the murders, she was at a bar with Marty and Bo, and Bo passed the comment that he, quote, felt like killing someone, end quote. So... After police spoke to Marilyn and learned this new information, they kind of began to wonder if Sue was killed for turning Bo down when he asked her out. So, next, the sheriff brought Marty and Bo in for questioning. But, instead of questioning them himself or using his own investigators, for some reason, unknown to us, the sheriff decided to allow two investigators from the Department of Justice, the DOJ, who were experts in the organized crime unit 
to interview the two men. Alarm bells are going off in my head. Like, why? Why would you bring in organized crime DOJ people to this tiny little town, you know, to interview these murder suspects? I mean, it might have been out of, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, more than they could handle. Yeah, I mean, I'll get to the theories about why they brought them in. But, I don't know, I was just like, uh, that's a little weird. But, anyway. Bo lied to the police and told them that he was previously a police officer, and he was shot during an armed robbery that he was responding to, and that caused him to become impotent, which is stupid to me because that should be something that's easily verified, Uh, but the, just the Andrews, like, didn't even bother. Yeah, so... Bo used this claim of impotence as a defense that he couldn't have killed Sue because she turned her down because he wouldn't have had an interest in her anyway due to his conditioning. Pause. Like, I know what impotence means, but I looked up the definition just to be sure and for purposes of our listeners in case people don't know. But according to MedicineNet.com, impotence is, quote, characterized by the consistent inability to sustain an erection sufficient for sexual intercourse or the inability to achieve ejaculation, or both, end quote. And impotence is more commonly referred to as erectile dysfunction. I promise I have a point, (laughs) which is, so, like, Bo claims to be impotent. Okay, I'll bite. But I don't feel like impotence would have anything to do with being attracted Uh to somebody. Like, how would she know that off the bat? His defense was that, he wouldn't have even asked her out in the first place because he's oh, impotent. Okay. But, you know, I don't feel like that would stop you from asking mm-hmm. somebody out. I don't, like, I don't know. I mean, but that's what he's claiming. I don't know. Something just seems kind of fishy to me. I, I mean, maybe, I guess I can see if that would stop you because you'd be, like, embarrassed if, like, things Progressed, led to yeah. the point of sex and then you can't perform. perform. I, but I just feel like at, at the same time, like, you're not going to not ask somebody out right ever or not be attracted to somebody like you can't anyway so bo also gave the alibi that he couldn't have killed sue because he was at the bar with marty weak alibi honestly but like so your your alibi is the other suspect or the other person they're interviewing but let's continue these detectives from the doj questioned bo and marty together no Mm-mm. Like, that's weird. Isn't that rule number one? Like, you separate them? So, and while Marty was speaking, Marty made some comments to police that immediately made him look... Suspicious. <laughs> Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Anyway, we've been on TikTok for months. <laughs> so, first, Marty told police that his stepson, Justin, could have been at the scene of the murder without Marty detecting him. The documentary I watched said that, but I don't know what that means. Like, maybe this was Marty, like, placing himself at the crime scene. Like, I'm not 100% sure. I, that was just, like, really weird. Wait, but Justin was not murdered, correct? Is that, yeah, that's. No, no, but Marty was saying, like, he could have been there and, like, seen it or whatever without him detecting that Justin was there. Like, why would you say that? Right. Like, are you placing yourself at the crime scene? Like, just not smart. 
Then Marty tells police that he's heard a hammer was used in the murders. And he continued that he's missing a hammer from his home. What? And specifically describes this missing hammer to police. As you already know, two hammers were used. One of them is missing. And and he described the hammer in the... I mean, like, what? Like, why why would you go ahead and, like, volunteer that information? Knowing it could be held against well, you you know some some killers like want to insert themselves into the investigation that's directly though yeah or like want to like toy with right you know the investigators but and i mean that seems like a substantial lead for police to uh-huh. me but it's never further investigated mari and Bo were both allowed to leave the police station and even left the state eventually and went to nevada and neither man was ever re-interviewed they both, like, left the state. I guess not together, you know, but eventually they both left the state. Come to find out, the sheriff of the town was reportedly one of Marty's best oh, friends. Oh, here we go. And people also speculated that Bo, at the time of the murders, was acting as a police informant in mob-related activity because he allegedly has ties to organized crime in Chicago, which is where he's from. Mm-hmm. Which... Brings me back to why two organized crime investigators were involved in the interview process of, you know, such a small-town murder. And, like I said, none of this is proven. This is all just speculation. But I came across it, so you be the judge of it. I'm allegedly, I'm covering myself, you know. It's all allegedly. So, there was even further speculation that Bo could have possibly been in witness protection related to his role as a police informant and so it's just a lot of stuff going on it's just too much yeah so like in recent years investigators have come out and said that they were told that they were to stay away from this case or they were going to be fired like that's not not at all as i said before Bo and marty both moved away and the police never bothered Never even bothered to search for the missing hammer. And the case went cold. Bo actually died in Chicago, Illinois in 1988. And Marty died in Portland, Oregon in 2000. So they're both dead now. Sheila Sharp actually came out and said that she has contacted police periodically like throughout the years. And there were like never really any updates. And she felt like nothing was being done. So that's just like really sad to me. Like do your job. (laughs) Right. So now we're going to jump to a different section, and I'm not going to say the title of the section because it gives it away. But I'm excited to learn. Right. But as I mentioned before, Tina was found to be missing from the Sharp family home in the aftermath of the murders, and she would remain missing for three years. What? And I mean three years to the day of the murders. Yes. On April 11th, 1984. On the three-year anniversary. Just, yes. Just as Tina's family was losing hope that they would ever find her. A human skull was found by a bottle collector about 50 miles from the Ketty Resort in nearby Butte County. 50 miles? Wow. Not even sure what a bottle collector is, but okay. Is that what you're doing with your life? But move on. (laughs) Moving on. So, at first, people assumed that this was the skull of a Native American, but then, and this this is where it gets a little weird, then the county received an anonymous phone call stating that the skull that was found actually belonged to Tina Sharp. 
And this phone call came in like before they even did tests or anything. So it they I guess publicized that a skull was found and then they got a clue. Yeah. And then like the clue said it was Tina and then the testing said it was Tina. The call, yeah. Yeah, the call. Yeah, so forensic results, including dental records, confirmed that this skull did in fact belong to Tina Sharp. And I don't they didn't find just her skull, I think they found several other skeletal. Right, but that was the big the um, big one. Yeah. Which they were too badly decomposed for investigators to determine a call to death or what happened. However, her skull was not crushed and there were no knife cuts on her bones. So they don't know how she died. So police started to be suspicious that the anonymous caller was somehow connected because what are the chances the remains will be found on the anniversary of the murders and Tina being abducted, you know? But luckily, there was a recording of the phone call, so police could further investigate it and try to determine, like, who made the phone call. Maybe they recognized the voice or something. However, and I know Amanda is about to flip a table when I say this. (laughs) I always say I'm going to flip tables. (laughs) Right. Before police could investigate the recording, it somehow mysteriously vanished. What? How how does it just van? How does it just disappear? So it couldn't be properly investigated. And that's just like mind blowing. Like, how do you lose evidence? Like, that reminds me of the evidence that, like, either went missing or was damaged in the Jennifer Harris case that we covered in episode seven. Like, we have got to do better. Like, this is unacceptable. Like, Like, how? I wonder if it was that Joel guy. The teacher? fucking weirdo. Dun, dun, dun. Like, why, like, why was, like, why did Tina get, and I'm using this term very loosely, special treatment? Like, why was she removed from the scene? Why, like, 50 miles? Like, like, what made her, why take her and not What made her stand out so much that it, like, you know what I'm saying? In 2010, Greg Hagwood became sheriff of Plymouth County, and he instructed his men to take another look at the Cabin 28 case file. So investigators read through the case file, examining every page, every document, every picture, just trying to find something, like anything that might give them a lead, you know, to solve this case. While searching through the case file again, investigators discovered that Marty was attending therapy at the VA in Reno, Nevada, you know, around the time of the murders, like, or after. So, investigators contacted the therapist and therapist counselor, whatever you want to call him, and he revealed that Marty confessed to the murders during Marty's seventh therapy session, which was just a few weeks after the murders. And I thought, I know there's HIPAA, I know there's doctor-patient confidentiality, but I thought if it was something along the, the lines of this. Oh, you already know I looked that up, so... So investigators, you know, brought the therapist in for a taped conversation where he explained to them, you know, what Marty confessed to during their sessions. And Marty allegedly said that he wanted to clear his conscience and he admitted to killing Sue and Tina, saying, quote, I killed the woman and her daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys, end quote. And that's a statement according to, like, what the counselor remembers from a conversation that happened in May of 1981. These murders happened in April of 1981. 
So when the counselor inquired of, you know, a motive, like why would you do that? Marty told the counselor that he was convinced that Sue was responsible for his wife Marilyn wanting a divorce. So that's a reason to kill somebody. But okay. Why? Because she was a recently divorced woman, single mother, and Marilyn thought it was trendy. So it's like Sue and Marilyn. I mean, they lived like across so the street. Like I guess. In cahoots. So like they were. They, I don't say they not I, like I, that, but just like how like neighborhood friends. Yeah, no, I don't want to say like they were like friends, but like apparently Sue had talked to Marilyn and was like, "Yeah, like you should probably, you know, leave him like, if you're unhappy right. or whatever." So he blamed Sue. Okay, well maybe you shouldn't be a trash bag human, right. and your wife wouldn't want a divorce. Maybe you shouldn't try to run her and her son over with a car. Well, Marty told his counselor that he had to kill Tina because quote. She saw the whole thing. I couldn't have a witness, end quote. So the counselor said that at that point, he told Marty, you know, you need to turn yourself in. And he says that Marty just smiled. Freaking monster. Right. So then the counselor asked about a polygraph test because Marty did take a polygraph test and passed it. Smart said, quote, I beat it. Those things are easy to beat. I was lying and they let me go, end quote. Which is why polygraphs are not admissible in trash. Right. So he confesses to this counselor. Okay, stop. Like, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Like you said, I was under the impression that therapists are mandatory reporters. Which basically just means that they can breach doctor-patient confidentiality if they believe the patient, you know, is a harm to themselves or others. So, like I do... I looked it up, and according to APA.org, which is the website for the American Psychological Association, therapists can break doctor-patient confidentiality in a few situations to protect you or the public from serious harm. For example, if you threaten to attempt suicide or seriously harm another person, the psychologist may alert people who can reasonably prevent the threat, including law enforcement or that person that they're threatening. They are required to report child abuse or neglect of children, right. the Just elderly, like teachers. or people with disabilities. Right. And they're typically required under state law to report this type of abuse or neglect and um, the specific circumstances that trigger that duty to report are different from state to state. You know, so like some states require psychologists to report abuse that an adult patient suffered as a child, but other states don't. To respond to an order from a court, like if they're subpoenaed or something. So, I was right, and therapists are required to report, which is exactly what this therapist did. According to Mike Gamberg, who's one of the cops that's working on the re-examination of the case, the counselor alerted the DOJ at the time of the confession and was kind of surprised that it didn't lead to an arrest. The counselor told Mike Gamberg that he called the DOJ and asked for the special agents working the Teddy case, uh-huh. which were the organized crime agents that we previously talked about. And the counselor, you know, told them, hey, he confessed to these murders, you know, and the agents set up a meeting with him and he went and met with them and everything. But after the meeting, the agents dismissed the allegations as quote unquote hearsay. Okay, but you have a duty to, I mean, I can't. I but can't. is it hearsay when it's coming from the, what is it, coming from the camel's mouth or however they say? Like, right, like he confessed to a medical professional. 
it's not like he told her who told him who told her who told him who told yeah it's a medical professional yeah, like it was from a to z yeah it's not like he went and told everybody and their mom in town i don't know so although the, you know when they were re-examining the case and they had the conversation with the therapist they needed more evidence to officially link marty to the murders and be able to close this case yeah, but did they ever take DNA from the crime scene? Did they ever take his DNA? Probably not. I'll get there. So, while they were re-examining the case, the police actually located the recording of the anonymous 911 call that was made telling police that the remains found with Tina. How convenient. The recording that mysteriously vanished in the mm-hmm. 80s. So, the evidence envelope that contained the tape or the recording, was never opened by police. Like, it was still sealed. So, investigators re-examining the case believe that the envelope containing the tape may have been purposely never opened. You know? And this is coming from the police working on it. You know, this is not me speculating. So, some good news. After its discovery, the tape was sent to the Voice Comparison Analysis Unit of the FBI, so that it could be compared to recorded interviews they have of other persons, of per, any persons of interest. So, I believe this was sometime in 2016, and I haven't been able to find any further details, you know, on what the results of the analysis were. But, I mean, a 32-year-old case, well, it was 32 years old at the time the evidence was submitted four years ago, now it's 36, but, I mean, a case that cold doesn't exactly have priority, so, like, they might have more active, right. more recent cases, so... Or, maybe they've gotten the results and they're just not telling anybody. I mean, especially yet. if he's already dead. Right. So, next, police discovered a handwritten letter from Marty Smart to his then-wife, Marilyn, which was postmarked 16 days after the murders. And, in the letter, Marty is begging Marilyn to fix their marriage. And he says, quote, I've paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives... You tell me we are through. End quote. Wait, I'm sorry. Is this um a hazing? Like what? What? It, like is there a pentagram? Right, like what is going on? Right. Like why? What? Like, like I don't that understand. That is more why. reason the for price her of to your love with four people's right, lives. That's more reason to drive her away than to reconcile. Uh, you're not about to put these murders on me, right? No. Tell me it's my fault. You did it for me. So, this letter was sent to the DOJ, and their forensics were able to extract DNA from the letter that is actually a match to Marty Smart. So, they know that he sent, you know, he sent it. He did send the letter. I think they got it off of, like, a stamp. Oh, yeah, back in the day, they weren't adhesive. Now we have self-stick stamps. But So, although this letter is merely circumstantial evidence, it definitely doesn't look good for good old Marty. So, in, like I said, this case is a lot. Um, sorry, this one's really long. But. So, in 2016, a local junk collector was using a metal detector around a lake in Ketty and came across an old rusty hammer. What? And he just threw it back into the lake thinking, you know, hey, this isn't really worth much. However, later he came across the website www.k28.com, which is a website devoted to the Ketty murders. And he saw that there's a missing hammer that could be related to the murder. So, you know, alarm bells start going off in his head like, oh my god, I just found that hammer. 
So he contacted the website and he told them what they what he found and the person who runs the website contacted the police and let them know and they went out and searched the lake and they located the hammer. What? Mm-hmm. So according to police, the hammer located in the lake is very similar to the description Marty Smart gave of the hammer that was missing out of his tool collection. And it's currently in the process of being forensically tested. I mean, they're really not releasing much of anything. So I don't know mm-hmm. that if, you know, the tests have come back, I wasn't able to really find anything. Maybe they're just holding their cards close to the chest until they can just be like, bam, this is it. Right. So this person, he they did it, you know, case closed. So in April of 2018, Plymouth County Special Investigator Mike Gamberg, the one that I've been talking about, he said that DNA evidence recovered from a piece of medical tape that was found at the crime scene and used to bind one of the victims matched that of a known living suspect. What? But the police apparently know who this person is. They know where to find him. However, they've never released the identity of this person, you know, this person of interest, nor if they plan to question the person or make an arrest. So like I said, that just blew my mind because who is this other person? You know? Like, maybe it was Marty and Bo and others, you know? Maybe, yeah. So, yeah. So, like, I don't know. That just blew my mind. I was like, oh, my God. Cause, and we don't know who it is. Like, that is, like, holy crap. Tell us. So, <laughs> right. So, where we are today... Cabin 28 was condemned and torn down in 2004, and I'm, like, 99% sure that this is not an active, like, um, resort anymore. And the Plymouth County Sheriff's Office is still currently investigating this case, and as I said before, test results for the hammer and phone call audio are still pending as of this recording. As always, we'll keep you updated when and if anything develops. If you have any information regarding this case, please call 530-283-6375 or 530-283-6360. And there's one more little thing that I want to talk about. So this case apparently has played into pop culture a good bit. Um, there have been at least two movies released that I came across during my research that were at least somewhat based on the Cabin 28 murders. The first was 2008's The Strangers, which was written and directed by Brian Bertino. Wait a minute. starred Liv Tyler. The Strangers? And Scott Speedman. Yes, Liv Tyler. Wait a minute. So, mm-hmm. that is the scariest movie I've ever seen, and I love, like, okay. So, back up. The Strangers, okay, I like scary movies, but I'm super picky with my scary movies. Like, I don't like gory, I don't like totally made up crap. I want to watch a scary movie that could actually happen, which is kind of weird, I guess. But I want something believable. And when Mm -hmm. I tell you, it was me and my ex in the theater, I was covering, I had a hoodie on, I was covering my face, and we were about to walk out of the theater, because I was like, this is just too much. I had no idea Mm -hmm. that that was based on that. Well, somewhat. So, Liv Tyler and Scott Speedman star as a young couple staying in an isolated cabin on vacation when they're terrorized by three unknown assailants. And if you haven't seen this movie, first of all, do you live under a rock? Second of all, go watch it 
because it will scare the living crap out of you, but it's really good. I'm going to go watch it tonight. <laughs> so, in an interview with Mirror.co.uk in 2018, ahead of the release of the sequel, The Strangers Pray at Night, which I haven't oh seen that yet, and I need to, but the director, Brian Bertino, said the inspiration for the first movie came from a combination of things. The first was his experience as a young child. Apparently, as a kid, like, they lived on this really isolated road, and someone knocked on the door of his house, and his little sister answered, and the people at the door asked for somebody who didn't live there, and they later found out that these people were going around knocking on doors, and if no one answered, they would, like, break into the houses. So, that's where, like, the home invader piece came from, and if you remember in the movie, they actually asked for somebody by name, and they're like, no, you have the wrong house. The second was actually the Ketty murders in Cabin 28. That gave him kind of the inspiration for, like, the secluded setting, okay. you know. And then the third was the Manson family murders of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca and the infamous murders of Sharon Tate, who was also pregnant, and four other friends who were staying at her home that night. Jay Sebring, Stephen Parent. Oh, God, I'm going to butcher this. Wojciech Frykowski and Abigail Folger. Yes, that Folger. She was the heiress to the coffee fortune. No way. Yeah. And I'm talking, when I say the Manson murders, obviously Charles Manson, you know, the Manson family. So the Manson murders inspired the eventual tagline of the movie, quote, because you were home, end quote, meaning that the murders are carried out without much, you know, rhyme or reason. And I don't know if I'll ever do an episode on the Manson family murders because that is a whole entire bag of crazy that I don't know if I want to open. (laughs) Plus, it would likely take an entire season just to cover all the information related to the murders, including the whole, like, cult family aspect of it. I say this, but who knows? Maybe eventually I'll change my mind and do, like, a multiple part, you know, on the Manson family. Maybe. I don't know. But I remember watching this movie when it came out, and it honestly scared me half to death because it's those kinds of horror movies that creep me out the most. Like, not the ones with some, like, really random sci-fi type thing that you know isn't real, you know, like you just said. No, it's the ones like this <laughs> that you can, like, see happening to you in we real life. We are not the same. <laughs> We're... <laughs> those scare the crap those out the of me. Those are the ones that I like. I actually... Those are the ones I love. Um, I actually rewatched this movie while doing research for this episode, and twelve years later, I'm still terrified. I thought that was our scene. And I will year. tell it you, came this. out in no eight, right? It was. Yeah, I had. A, yeah, I thought I remembered. Yeah, and I will tell you this: we watched this movie, and we turned the TV off, and fifteen minutes later, we're going to bed, and I hear noises. Oh my god! And I am <laughs> freaking. It was. It was my daughter, like, getting water or going to the bathroom. But I was, like, I was about to, like, you know, throat punch my own kid. Because yeah, she scared the crap out of me. <laughs> yeah. And the second movie was a movie that actually came out in 2017 called Cabin 28. Written by John Kleiser and directed by Andrew Jones. Starring a bunch of people I've never heard of. No offense if that's you. One of those low-budget films? Yes. This movie is actually based on the murders in Cabin 28. Like, the characters have the same, like, names. Wow. It is, like, Sue, Johnny, you know, Sheila, uh-huh. like, Dana Wingate, all of them. I haven't watched it because all the reviews I read were 
horrible, and apparently it was a super low-budget film. Nobody come for me. Like, I know some low-budget films are really great, but literally every single review I found was basically like, don't waste your time watching this movie. <laughs> so I figured I wouldn't bother watching it. But I wanted to include it anyway, just in case anyone else feels so inclined to try to watch it. Do you know where you can find it? I don't. Um, where did you find Strangers? I rented it on, like, Amazon. No, actually, I did, like, the 14-day free free trial. Yeah. Okay. So, that, yeah, that's what it was. But it wasn't on any of our, uh, the stuff we pay for. No, it wasn't on, like, streaming. Oh, wait, you can actually watch Cabin 28 on Prime Video. It's included with Prime. Oh, yes, I'm gonna watch that tonight. Yeah, I mean, on IMDb, it has 3.2 out of 10 stars. So, I don't know, maybe I will watch it, we'll see. I don't know, I just, I don't know how I feel about basing a movie on a national murder that happened that you don't know what happened. Like, it is unsolved. Right, and they didn't even bother to change the names. Like, you're taking a lot of liberties with, you know, what you think happened. I don't know, I don't know. Anyway, if anybody watches it, let us know what you think. maybe I won't watch it. So I lied. That wasn't the last thing. There's one more thing. Uh, So we just wanted to take a second to remind everyone, all of our listeners, that we absolutely love getting listener case suggestions. We've covered a few cases that were suggested by listeners, so send us your suggestions. Um, You can remain anonymous if you want, but we always love to give shout-outs, too. Um, also don't forget, we now have a Facebook discussion group. It's called Homicide Homegirls Discussion Group. And so you can try searching it and, um, request to join. Super easy. And we're trying to grow the group to have more discussion about cases we cover. So go join. Right. Um, we're kind of not consistent with it, but we don't get much interaction because I think a lot of people who, who request it aren't, they, I don't even know if they're listeners. Or maybe they try mm-hmm. to follow the page and get the group or yeah. vice versa. Or, yeah. Yeah, or there's a lot of our, our friends that will just directly text us right. about it, too. So that's that's part of it. But also, speaking about, um, you know, case suggestions, this case was actually sent to me by Megan from Sideline Sleuth. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she sent me this a while back. She's like, hey, I'll probably never do this one, but this might be a you know, good one. For you to do so, and it's kind of been on on, on my radar for a while. So, so shout thanks, out Megan. Megan L of Irving, Texas, at Sideline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go check out Sideline Sleuths. So, um, yeah, but you know, like we said, this is an unsolved case. So, you know, we set up Google Alerts. So, if anything, she would be the one to send you this unsolved update. nonsense. Because <laughs> that's all she basically all she. Well, not all. Most most of what she does. She loves unsolved. Unsolved. Yeah, I'm adding you, Megan. This one took me, a, I feel like this one took me a really long time, just because there was so much, you know, Yeah. Um, going on with it, you yeah. know, so. I'm kind of mad that there was no conclusion. Yeah, I know. But, you know, anyway, everybody stay safe, Um, you know. Hang in there. Keep. Yeah, hang in there. Hopefully this pandemic crap will be over really, really soon. Well, y'all, that's the case of the Ketty Murders and Cabin 28. Thank you for listening to Homicide Homegirls. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to our Facebook page 
and leave us a review or rate us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you want to be the first to know when an episode is released, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, Facebook at facebook.com slash Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you would like to suggest an episode, use the form located on our Facebook page. Once a month, we plan to answer fan-submitted questions in a segment we like to call hashtag AskTheHomegirls. So be sure to use the form on our Facebook page to submit your questions. 